is something that we have also learned a lot on as a company. We have now software that enables everybody to see the actual results of projects. So you can use that as a base for your new fee proposal instead of that old fee proposal that you sent. So I don't see this as a linear process. Of course, per project it is linear, but as a company, it should definitely be a circle that you close. And by bringing those teams closer together, by making sure that there is a close link between BD and contract management, between finance and contract management and finance and business development, you make sure that everybody is kind of on the same page of what's happening and what the changes are or what's coming up. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Jan and Inga of MVRDV for a fireside chat about how to win work. Jan joined MVRDV in 2008. Before this, he started his career as a journalist and then shaped the public image of OMA for nearly a decade. As partner of MVRDV, Jan leads the contracts, business development, and public relations efforts, forming a client-oriented, fast, and strategic studio that includes a strong visualization team. He leads MVRDV's branding efforts and has overseen the practice's rapid expansion into new markets, focusing on solutions for global issues through its architecture and urbanism. Inga is managing director of MVRDV and is an architect who specializes in change management, company professionalization, and organizational development. Inga worked for various international companies before she came to work for MVRDV in 2008, where she was responsible for project coordination and planning and helped set up the firm's office in Shanghai. Since 2018, Inga has been MVRDV's managing director and a driving member of the management team at MVRDV. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Jan and Inga, and thank you so much, uh, Chris, as well. Hi, great uh, honor to be here. I have to correct you. Maybe it's our mistake, but contract management, I have. Hand it over. Oh. Yes. <laughs> oh, very happy. Well, that's a good that. clar- clarification. Passing <laughs> the baton. So, well, on that, the first question is perfect then. What is, how can you describe the working relationship between the two of you? MVRDV. Yes, you start. All right. Well, we represent here operation of the company and in a way, uh, the future. We are two of the 11 uh, studios that we have. Maybe one is missing here at the table today, which is finances, but the other eight are then design studios. So with these three support studios, we continuously work to deliver a few things for the architects and that they have a smooth design process. And uh, we try to have good working conditions for them, make sure that we're financially healthy and that there's a steady stream of incoming projects. So that's that's basically what we do. We help the company function, or the practice. <laughs> yeah. How interesting that you described it as studios, like you contextualize the groups, these like functional units in sort of a similar sense to your design business units. Have you actually adopted some of the <clears throat> mentality of the studio kind of culture to these other functional organizations like operations, finance, or as you called it, the future? All organized in a similar way. There's one person heading these studios. They are also part of the MD, the management team. 
And in all the studios, we have a similar approach in our HR systems, in how we collaborate, in our social events, in how we communicate. And we also deliberately try to really mix these three, let's say, non-design studios with the eight design studios to make sure that the contracting part is incorporated from an early stage and that the financial people really understand what our designs are about so that it's it becomes one coherent yeah, entity. Yeah. Equality is super important for my staff, at least. Uh, they don't want to be more or less than the architects, but they want to be on the same level uh, in terms of where they stand in the company. I'm curious then, how, what are the common conversations that you're seeing yourselves having, at least between both of you, when it comes to, you know, maybe just the, what are the most common conversations would be interesting to know. I think... I always want to talk about the future and where do we go? And Inger always wants to talk about how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, sums it up quite nicely. Yeah. And I think when I started, I've been organizing many things. And even to some extent, people said, please stop organizing. But what I'm trying to do is to organize things in such a way that it doesn't feel that it's really a paved road. So because of all the systems, they should basically ease the processes. So that you don't need to think about how do we actually do this? No, it's common sense. We always take step one to 10 and then we reach the end. So that's, we're trying to facilitate processes. And as Jan said before, to really smoothen the design. Yeah, what our core part of the business is. And it's of course a creative company. So uh, people are not fond of new rules, regulations, protocols. They're all bad names. So whatever Inga comes with <laughs> has to prove itself pretty fast. <laughs> It does. It does, yeah. yeah. One question we sometimes talk about is how certain ideas for improvement are surfaced and flagged. Like, do you find that in your conversations, is it that you're hearing from team members at different levels of the organization frustrated with certain workflows or, you know, either entering new markets presents new workflows themselves? Like, how are those things surfaced back up to the strategic team? It could be frustration or um, that people don't understand how things work, but it could also be so that we see that in some of the design studios, the systems are so different. And then we think, okay, we need to align because it shouldn't matter whether you work in studio A, B, or C, you're working at MVRDV. So if we see that the systems start deviating too much, then apparently it, there is a need to say, okay, how do we do this? And can we just briefly put it on paper so that we don't need to have this discussion again in a year's time and again in two years' time? No, we agree now as an MT, this is what we think works best for MVRDV. And that works because that kind of kills all the future discussions that you may have on this. So then you can spend that time talking about the future again and mistakes huh? i mean we're a growing organization and you do make mistakes and then you need to learn from them and make sure that they don't happen again which is also i think one of the yeah the drivers of uh, organization and i think then there's the golden rule so when we make one mistake once then sometimes i would say let's make a system and then jan would say let's not make a system for everything but if then it happens again and again so i think that's kind of the rule if you think okay but we've had this discussion before then that triggers the thinking okay let's then semi-formalize this to make sure that we don't have any confusion again. That should happen more than once before it gets a guideline or a protocol or a system. That's fantastic how you you basically showed us how you like 
work through challenges sort of theoretically. I'm curious, both internally and externally, what are some examples of actual key messages that you want MVRDV as an organization to be received by the team? And then also, what are those messages that you want uh, the outside world to receive about MVRDV? Maybe if I do the internal, you the external. For me, <laughs> internal, it is very important that we are a pleasant yet highly ambitious organization, company, uh, practice. People should want to work here. They should feel that they go home at the end of the day having had a satisfactory day with good interaction with their uh, colleagues. For me, that is very important, that you see that you can contribute, that it brings you joy, that you feel that you are respected and rewarded for what you bring. And that you can also combine it with a personal life, that it's not only about work. So for me, those are important elements. Yeah, there is this ambition to be the best uh, employer in architecture. And uh, I'm not sure whether we're there, probably not, but we are at least uh, trying to get there. That's the continuous challenge and ambition. And what do you say externally? To the outside world, we have a really ambitious message because we're like, you know, when architects come from the university, they have learned to do everything they believe. And we are like that still. We don't believe in specialization. So we want to be good in everything. We work from really small projects like a vast, that's our smallest so far, until large scale urban planning and everything in between. And so in that sense, yeah, combining this with our radical solutions, the remarkability of our design, and then also our, uh, yeah, if you want, philosophical agenda, which is social green, focused on innovative solutions to urgencies in the world and so on. We really want to be uh, relevant as a practice and participate in, in this, this global uh, change at the moment. And you can imagine that our PR team is continuously struggling with this stack, this heap of information I just gave you that needs to be out there. And uh, all in all, at this moment, perhaps uh, our biggest challenge is that we want to communicate also that we care about the planet. And uh, this all, my view, needs to be extremely based on facts and uh, because uh, so many companies do it. So we as a practice need to have communication about sustainability that is really traceable and very practical. I'm curious, Jan, you had a, a book that came out recently about how to win work, which was a really amazing read. And I really suggest uh, everyone listening to go out and get it because I think it's one of the first books that I've seen that talked about this problem through all its stages, but also with case studies in a really, really clean way. And what I'm curious is actually, this question is actually going to be for Inger. It's more, if Jan has kind of written this book about how to win work, what would be the book that you would write, that you would want to write, or that you have some ideas of writing in the future that could be a good pairing maybe to how to win work? I would write a book on how to organize a creative business. It can't be a surprise, I think, after the introduction, how to focus on having a positive impact, but also with a very clear focus on how to maintain your creativity and not become a very corporate uh, company or corporate designer. Because what we want to do is be a creative company. And of course, you also need to make money, you need to make profit, but this is really not our main objective. We just want to design great 
yeah, creative and innovative solutions. So how do you do that? What is needed at the back end to make that possible? And what really helped me is that I'm trained as an architect, so I can understand that you need to organize certain things, but also to a certain extent. Don't kill the creativity by coming up with too many guidelines and systems and ticking boxes. So that would be what I would write it about. And when we grew so fast, uh, Jan already mentioned the book uh, earlier, that our internal book, when we grew beyond 100 people, we also did a little tour through Europe. We spoke with many uh, different companies, architects, but also very other companies that were creative or had grown really fast to Ask them, how do you maintain your identity whilst being in this growth spurt? And how to maintain creativity. Definitely, yeah. And then we came to the conclusion that the compartmentalization that we now have, so organize ourselves in studios, that really works because it gives people a sense of belonging. It also gives people the sense that you're part of a smaller studio. So that really helped us to define the path. And I would also bring that into my book. I should call it how to build work. <laughs> the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> no link yet to Amazon, uh, Chris. <laughs> That's fascinating how you found that the compartmentalization of these studios, was it a certain size that was important? And is it a typology that is defining the different groups? How have you broken out the different design groups based on either project type or region, or is it size? I'm curious what parameters you use to kind of adjust when it's time to move to a new group. It's a combination, really. It's mainly geographical because that helps you with the language. We have a French studio. We have an Asian studio where we have a lot of Chinese speakers, for instance, a German studio. But we also have an urban studio that can cover uh, the different markets that we work in. We also have an interior studio now. So it's a mix of different areas and they can also interact. So if you have an interior project in Asia, we make a team that is compiled out of both studios. And we said the design studio should ideally between 20 to 40, max 50 people so that you still have that team feeling. And so you basically have to apply for another job if you want to change studio, if you're in the higher parts where architects usually they're a bit more flexible, but in the management of the studio, project leaders and so on, they actually have to uh, apply. They cannot just move like that. And it helps. Also, sometimes a studio can be an ambition. Yeah? So, for example, we named one of the studios The Americas, and they started with projects only in the Netherlands and in Eastern Europe. And now finally we have American projects. So it was very important to give them the name that it was clear where they were moving at that moment. Oh, that's fascinating. So th there is also a relationship too between, let's say, what, what I'm kind of picturing if this were a diagram is that there's like certain studios that are almost matrixed, right? They kind of are feeding into cross other studios as a resource to collaborate on different projects. And then it seems like are both your teams similar in the sense of like the operational team and the business development PR team? Is that also basically a, this, that studio runs across all different teams? And if so, is it the idea that you have embedded people within other studios to help, like for the Americas, let's say, is this business development sort of structured in the sense that you have a, pers a person in that team helping to like build pipeline for the Americas? 
or is it a bit different? Because we, in, for context, like sometimes we see it where like some firms operate with like it's kind of seller doer model, right? Where project teams themselves might have PMs or maybe principals as part of that studio that are trying to bring in work. And so it'd be interesting to hear how you look at that. BD and PR teams, there are collective teams so that they uh, that it's a bigger group that can be flexible. Uh, if, if one studio is getting bigger and another studio is, uh, is getting smaller, then maybe it's good to shift the attention a little bit. However, uh, they do have one partner in each team and PR and BD for each studio. So it's a hybrid model to what you described. Uh. But it's also deliberately that PR and BD are separate teams because then you can also build, how do we want to do BD as MVRDV? That you have standard fee proposed, that the way you present yourself to clients, that doesn't matter which studio it comes from, we just have our MVRDV approach and the same for PR. So there is a deliberate choice in making those specific teams. That's really nice jobs because they work with all the studios. They see all the projects. So we also have lots of architects working there. So it's if you're an architect, you love architecture. This is exactly the place where you see most of it. Huh? You're not, let's say, um, stuck in, in one project for five years or something like that. But you see them all coming uh, mm. faster. It's really, really nice. And that was also one of our recommendations of our tour to the different companies when we grew so fast that as much as possible, the people in the non-design studios, let that be people that have either an affinity with architecture or were once architect mm. that you can really yeah, relate to what's going on in the company. I mean, that part's like incredibly fascinating uh, to me because they're... It's often, been, it would be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but it's often like when you go into the industry, right? Or when you go to school, you don't come out of it thinking like, I want to do business development. And so I'm curious if it's like something where, how do you build even that internal talent pipeline where people kind of self-select themselves either within the company or, you know, even just the idea of going into business development as an architect might be foreign to some people, right? They might just like, it's not, not what they signed up for or thought about it initially, but how have you found it to be successful where you're able to find people that are interested in making that move? I think it started very small that we found a, a CV of a young architect who had also worked for a magazine. And we offered her the PR job and she took it. She's still with us for, I think that's 12 years ago or so. And we do that with, with all kinds of people. Sometimes you see uh, somebody who had a year of economic study before they moved into architecture. So you could also do that. But these are also the people that actually go for architecture. Or it's like me, you know, I love architecture. I'm not an architect. So for me, it was very natural to go to an architecture uh, practice and do something else. And yeah. But we also have people that come from the design studios that are now in your BD team. Yeah. Because they also they love networking. They yeah. have a great network. They are fantastic in going out there and selling MVRDV. So that's, yeah, it can come from all directions. Like, yeah, indeed. There's uh, like people that are totally impatient because in BD you have continuous deadlines and in the architecture you have them as well. But, you know, it's like three months for a competition. It can last five years before the building is there. So let's say... For very impatient architects, BD is a pretty good uh, place. Yeah. 
I'm going to add to this too. Really curious what the three most common questions you get, Jan, after having read your book. And I got to add too for Ingar, what would you think would be the three most common questions someone would get after reading the sequel, How to Build Work? Well, I can't really give you three most asked questions because it's usually one of them would be, how would you found an architecture office in Bulgaria? <laughs> so I have to say, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Then the other one is, uh, oh my God, this is way too much, your book. How do I set a priority? How do I do all these things? So that's a very uh, serious question, of course. And I think I also actually answer this in the book by saying you need to lay the focus on the things that come more natural to you. And then you ask for three things. So the third would be that uh, many of the readers uh, invited them to contact me on LinkedIn and they sent me their stories. So I have lots of small case studies of uh, all kinds of ways how people can actually do PR and marketing and architecture. I'm so grateful for that because this feedback makes it also really worth uh, that, uh, writing a book. And my first question, of course, is when is your book coming out? Because it's not yet there. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, what I, sometimes I tell this story on how to organize a company in my lectures. And then often the question is, what do I need to study to become this or to get a position like you have? I guess that will be a question then as well. And to that, my answer normally is, is try to be like a sponge, go out there and listen and absorb and yeah, follow courses, read books and just yeah, listen carefully and ask a lot. And I can imagine that there will be a question on where, where's the balance on when do you stop organizing and when is it still contributing to having a better or more streamlined or more efficient or more creative company? Now, those are all great questions. I am curious now to kind of transition a little bit into some of the changes you've seen since joining MBRDB. I'm curious for, aside from, let's say, entering new markets, which has its own changes, right? Because it's a whole different mentality. Everything is very, very different often. Are there any changes that you've been able to track over the past, you know, over 10 years at this point that specifically with clients, like has anything changed in terms of even from a business development perspective or a PR perspective of how has the mindset with clients changed? Has their attitudes, have their attitudes changed and, and preoccupations changed? I mean, I think obviously maybe sustainability might be one factor. Climate change is one kind of uh, pressure or something that clients might be actively thinking about. But is there anything even about the approach to business development that has evolved and changed over the course of, you know, since you've been at MBRDB? I would say the entire discipline has changed because when I started to work for uh, for architects, uh, which was in '99, it was in many countries still a, a protected profession, and there was no such thing as business development. And in many countries, you had this fee system, so it was very clear what the architect would earn. There were standardized contracts and everything. So uh, quite a bit of what uh, what BD and PR is doing in our practice was not necessary because it wasn't, wasn't this kind of business where you would need that. So that has changed dramatically and uh, it has become a real business with also financial competition. And so we have very grown up uh, negotiation processes with clients. And uh, what's also changed perhaps from the time that, that I joined MVRDV is that we grew from uh, 45 people to way above uh, 300. So that means that uh, also you have much more 
professional people on the other side of the of the table where our projects used to be perhaps much smaller maybe sometimes more artistic now we also work for really serious uh, real estate uh, developers and they also expect a very professional architect uh, to meet them and and make contracts and uh, yeah this entire side of the practice which is not designed they also expect to be professional so there's a continuous development still as you grow not just in size but also as a yeah, company to change these things yeah, it's all. It's um. I think you mature if you uh, the company becomes more mature also in these processes and how you deal with them. And I also think we much more in the beginning BDPR. I think many people confused the two abbreviations. What's what? And I don't know what the difference is. I think that has become much clearer. And also what the effect of one is on the other, because great PR brings BD that we can react to. And if you don't have PR, you need to proactively go out to do your BD. So I think that whole cycle of how things work and also how you can let your successful projects lead to new work, that is something that, yeah, I think you have contributed enormously to for MVRDV in the past uh, decades. One thing that we sometimes see paired up, so if we think about like PR and BD being sort of in the same studio as Jan's, we will sometimes see finance and operations being that pairing on the internal side of the back office. And what's kind of interesting is in your case, um, there are two different studios, but do you have a way of thinking about the operations side where it's kind of two pieces in the way that PR and BD are two pieces, or do you see that as finance plus operations? I see that as a cycle that you need to close because you have BD, then you have your contracts, then of course you have finance and operations during your process. And then what the final result is needs to feed back into your new BD. And of course you also have PR at the end. And I think in the beginning, but also the end of the project, of course, but this is something that we have also learned a lot on as a company we have now software that enables everybody to see the actual results of projects so you can use that as a base for your new fee proposal instead of that old fee proposal that you sent so i don't see this as a linear process of course per project it is linear but as a company it should definitely be a circle that you close and by bringing those teams closer together by making sure that there is a close link between BD and contract management, between finance and contract management and finance and business development, you make sure that everybody is kind of on the same page of what's happening and what the changes are or what's coming up. This iterative cycle that you mentioned is, you mentioned it earlier too about learning from failure and how there's these, we talk about them sometimes as cadences in how Feedback is both surface, but then re-implemented as new procedures and things like that. Like, does your team have a cadence that you stick to? As an example, we've interviewed um, some firms that talk about, you know, there's what they meet about on a weekly basis. There's what they meet about on a monthly, quarterly, and yearly basis. Like, can you walk us through a little bit of what that might look like in terms of what kind of questions are being asked and when? Every month I have a talk with every studio director to look at their studio results and how that links with the annual budget, uh, what the plans are. Then there are separate meetings between the studio and business development. So if they are low on work, they will have a different conversation with business development than in other periods. 
contract management comes in when needed because that's really when a project starts. So then they are, what I see more and more is that they're in from the very early stages. So that helps. We have annual business plans per studio, but also as a company, we have a midterm review twice a year, which should then midterm doesn't really make sense, but we do that before the summer and also let's say September, October. And then that also feeds into the business plan for the year that's coming up. And we have weekly and team meetings, and there we really look together at the pipeline, what's coming in, who needs work, what kind of new work will we accept or will we follow up on, and where do we think it doesn't really meet our expectations or our ambition. So we have different levels of meetings, and you know, when something is urgent, then of course we will have uh, an in-between meeting to uh, solve issues. And you're, you're talking also about targets for the team. There's the annual budget. That's the main financial target. But uh, for the business development and PR team, the main targets that they work from day to day are actually more typologies. We set out uh, what typology is our priority at the moment and uh, where do we want to have a good portfolio in. And uh, these are the challenges. And also here it's changing. Uh, imagine mixed use is fine, then maybe public buildings needs more attention and so on. So this is uh, much more content-based than uh, solely uh, yeah, financial. Finance, yeah. One question that comes up a lot, especially in smaller firms, but I think generally is applicable, is around pricing and trying to uh, make a different case for value that you're delivering as an architect. And I imagine that you have figured out some interesting things about how to make this case, how to track results, not only internally, but also externally for, for the clients that you work with. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any tips for principals, firm leaders in the audience who are challenged with creating new budgets with their new clients after having seen that uh, it's very difficult for them to make their existing practice as profitable as will keep them going future years. What else? Oh. Well, what we look at, it's also, it's easier for us to say this with a long track record and we are at a negotiation table in a different position than a starting architect. So what I say may not be applicable to all, but what for us is very important is that the client that you talk to has the same or a similar ambition as you do as an architect. Because what we see is that that will smoothen the whole fee conversation. Because if this client has an ambition and he or she feels that you are the right party to fulfill this ambition, you will find a way to agree on fees. So that's one thing. I really think you need to connect on content and probably also on a personal level. The other thing is that we, and I hope that goes for all the architects, that you add quality, that you don't just build volume, you don't just build structure, but by bringing in an architect, you make sure that you build quality, you build something that the end users appreciate and hence will take care of. And I think that is also an important thing because then if the users are feeling responsible for the structure or for their house or for the neighborhood, they will use it differently than when it's an ugly building. I think that's also scientifically proven. And another thing that we always do, and that's very much 
ingrained in how we work is that we try to reach a little bit further than the actual question that, that the client has. That can be on quality, that can be on a completely different solution than that the client was actually asking for. And it can also be that we find ways to actually maximize the quantity that a client can build on that specific plot. Mm. So then you also add quality because more square meters means more rent or more profit or whatever the use of the building is. So that is, yeah, I think those things I would bring to the table when talking to clients. Yeah, we definitely try to exceed expectations. Doesn't always function with every project that we do. But quite often, and we go back to the buildings after some time, we talk to people that live there, work there, uh, use them, we talk to the clients, and usually they are super happy. So we are in that sense a success. Recently, we also looked into it with a cost consultant uh, that made a statistic about the, the value of the real estate of our buildings and around our buildings. So there was a very good outcome. We also uh, gonna talk about this quite soon and publicly to see to show that this is actually also a way to statistically evaluate uh, good architecture and that's something that we always want to say you pay a bit extra but you also get a lot extra so it's uh, uh, in the long run it's cheaper i think that yeah. is definitely the case yeah. i mean that's phenomenal and my mind is reeling because there's just so many different uh, ways to take this but i wonder how much does the brand of MVRDV help? In other words, like when it comes to, and this is a conversation we have too, no matter what size of firm, right? There's something different about a, uh, someone coming to you as a prospective client who's already kind of bought in to you as a company, but also like the ethos of the company, right? That there's now, they feel like they understand MVRDV's philosophy and perspective. And so the conversation around fees is just very different because they're kind of bought in, right? They're, they they already align with you, and which would be very different from them going to someone else in which they don't feel that same level of alignment. Do you find that that is the case? And if so, do you ever, maybe on the flip side, just not work with clients potentially who don't align with the company in some way, right? Where it's like part of a no-go decision-making framework that you have. We do have clients sometimes where you enter the conversation and you think, well, you just want a box. You just want to make money. Mm. And then we are not the right architect for you, mm. not for us, but also in the end, not for that client. So then it's better to be honest from the beginning than when we come with outrageous suggestions where this client thinks, but I just wanted the box. I mean, you can sense this from the beginning, whether, yeah, that's the ambition, what I referred to in the beginning. Yeah, you need to manage expectations and understand whether you want the same. And that's not always very easy because uh, some clients, they come, you know, we have a certain name, so they would like to have a box with MVRDVs uh, on it. So uh, in order to make more money, that's also not what we like to do. We are kind, we are very authentic in what we believe in. Uh, we always have been also in, in times that we didn't have a big name and uh, maybe, you know, the, the rock group uh, KISS, when uh, with the lots of makeup and uh, when they were still touring uh, just bars and pubs, they would still do all the makeup, even if there were only two people. And in the beginning, yeah. when I joined MVRDV, quite often people didn't know us. They thought this is uh, uh, weird stuff that they're building. And it was not necessarily, you know, our brand value, our philosophy wasn't always uh, seen as a positive thing, but more as a risk. 
So you need a few buildings to actually um, prove to the world that you can do it. And we had that moment with the market hall in Rotterdam that people finally saw that it can be done. Before that, we were up to a certain point, an, uh, a paper architect, and uh, suddenly uh, there was evidence that it can be done. And this was really the pivotal moment where we became a more, a bit, yeah, moved from this paper architecture to brick and mortar. And maybe it's good to add also for the balance in what kind of company we are, because now we talk about fees and how we meet each other there. We also find it important to sometimes work for a very low fee with a client that has a high social, sustainable or whatever positive ambition that we think we're willing to be part of this. And we try to break even, but even if that's not possible, we would sometimes say, yeah, sure, we do this. So I think it's also important that we don't only go for the big architectural impact, but also where can we have another kind of impact with a social element or yeah, making a design for a completely different. We're now working on the, the new Fugerei, which is the oldest uh, social housing project in the world. They have turned 500 years somewhere in Germany. And they wanted uh, from us a project to design the Fugerei system of the future, that it could be exported globally to all kinds of yeah, people who would like to open one of these social housing projects. So also here, that was one of these projects where we really didn't earn uh, any money, but we felt this would make such a big difference that we really needed to do it and needed to be part of it. And also, it's just uh, so much fun to do that. Huh? It's, uh, like, and it's rewarding. And yeah. Makes us happy. <laughs> and sometimes this also comes from our own team members in the area where the office is. We had a, a project to make this area much more green and get cars out of the out of the streets and turn that into temporary small parks. So that was yeah. This then comes from our team members, and then we don't talk about okay, what's the fee? How do we do this? No, we want to do this. We want to make an impact and show what a different world could look like. So I think that's also the balance that people really appreciate when they work here. That there's space for that. And it's great R and D because these smaller projects they actually feed then uh, all kinds of knowledge into the larger projects that we are well paid for. Yeah, and you have a section in the book about planning workflows and considering it's kind of an operational question as well. I'm curious how, what your thinking is about overbooking because of the risk that a project that you even contract on uh, will get delayed. And I'm curious if you could try to contextualize this too, in terms of how a small to mid-sized firm might approach this as well, because I think that some might think that, oh, this is only possible through the affordances of a very large firm, like a 400 person firm. But considering that you've seen You've you know started off in a forty person firm at MVRDV. I'm curious how you might relate this mentality and this this approach to the small firm as well. We overplan. We still do that because what you see is that architecture in itself is a very volatile business. I think all architects will uh, acknowledge this. The projects can all of a sudden be put on hold. And I think especially now, at least in Europe, you see that there is more uncertainty on the market. So things get delayed or maybe even stopped completely. You don't want a team that is then yeah, twisting their thumbs and waiting for the next project to come in. So we always have the tendency to indeed have more in the pipeline than you can uh, maybe accommodate in your teams. And if it then all happens at the same time, 
yeah, we have a flexible pool of people. So if push comes to shove, you could say, okay, we call these freelancers and they help out on this project or you temporarily put other projects on hold, which is of course a luxury that we have as a bigger company. And when you're smaller, that becomes a little bit harder. And you could possibly compare it to uh, KLM flights or any other flights. They always overbook because passengers don't show up and then you don't have uh, 80% occupancy, but it's still full and people are okay to take the next flight. So it's, I would say it's smart, but depending on your size, yeah, you overbook with maybe 5% or with 10%, depends on the type of project you have. So. Yeah, I wrote this in my book also after a discussion with an architecture firm with only four people, and it's a couple. She wanted to overbook, and he didn't want to do it because he couldn't handle the, the pressure and wouldn't sleep at night. So he won, but the one project that they had but they had two projects one of the two actually stopped and instantly they were in existential trouble so even for a smaller firm this is much more important to have a good uh, flow of projects so they survived this but also uh, learned that a little bit of overbooking is super essential for them right? because it just basically is just in, in reality it will lead to a stable flow of projects and not too much problems if you do it in a good way yeah, and I think it also helps if you have more smaller projects that you make one team that takes all those projects together as one bigger project, because then you can sort of balance out the peak in one project with a lower pressure in the other. So then you say this group of five people take these three smaller projects. And then, yeah, that kind of keeps itself uh, intact. I mean, that, that this has been such an amazing conversation. We do have some questions from the audience um, that maybe we can pick up. So as Inga said, this is from Luciano. Thank you so much. How do you maintain your creativity without turning a firm into a corporate one in a sense? Like there's a thin line. I'm going to sort of try to paraphrase here. Oh, I guess like between having sort of a, a lab mentality versus running a smooth organization, then the question could be, how has MVRDB's evolution in regards to relevant topics over the years has it, I guess the question, sorry, I should have probably pre-read before I do it. It's a little bit... Uh, <laughs> A little bit tougher, but I think the gist of it is essentially like, has the preoccupations of the firm changed over time? And if so, or are there any consistencies in those preoccupations? Like, you know, the things that have been core to NVRDB, and maybe this is part of the this idea of like how it started, where it's um, three partners who have a very diverse uh, set of interests at different scales of a city. Is there any kind of through line that continues or what has kind of changed as well? I think roughly we were very much about densification, having grown up with the warning by the Club of Rome. And that is still in our DNA every day. What has changed uh, massively is that we also now understand that the warning of the Club of Rome is really comes <laughs> into reality and that just focusing on densification is not enough but we also need to actually learn all these uh, sustainable technologies to make our work not contribute to the climate change but actually be some kind of a tool against it so and that's a really big uh, challenge that we are going through at the moment it's a disruption it's still very much in line with our initial philosophy but the ways to way to go there is uh, has of course changed. I think what is also still there is our 
experimental mindset. It's even though we are a practice that is uh, 30 years old almost, we're still often perceived as a very young, dynamic, energetic company. Yeah, that's also something I'm actually very proud of that this is still here, even though we're quite old. Yeah, and we're we're really nerds in a way you know somebody comes to us with uh, the question for an office building in a new town outside of Lille on a plot of land where there used to be a petrol station and you know most signature architects would send them away we think about it and we think wow this is the only building that you can actually see of this new town because it's so well planned and yeah then we say yes and we try to make it happen and we even try to have to try to make it happen competing with local architects for the same price so we are just really interested in in innovation and these new things so yeah that is very strong as a motive and that also prevents us from becoming um yeah this very commercial practice actually all the organization we do inga and i we are trying to make the radical designs possible we want them to be radical but we also want to the the practice to a real actually, business yeah yeah to build it huh? well, that's i think that's our main mission is to help them all to to realize their dreams we have a few questions here that overlap about actively searching for clients private or public who you want to work with, make an impact on and or change social issues, make an impact on the climate. How do you go about doing this gracefully in, you know, with consideration, kind of as a, a representation of what you're like as a practice, and yet you still have this impatience, like you, I love the way you describe this, impatient architects are a good talent pipeline into a BD. So I'm curious, how do you bring that impatience to pursuing new markets, new target clients, and still going about that in consistent with what you want, the kind of firm you want to build. I would say that also the BD staff and these impatient architects, they also work here for a reason, because they love our work, they love the thinking and philosophy. And so for them, they are looking for the right partners. And it can be as simple as going to a website and having a look whether that institute that uh, that potential client is actually into our kind of architecture you know if, if the website is riddled with boxes then it's probably not for us or if they talk about the same kind of values and maybe they don't have the kind of architectural quality that we that we would offer them then we could also go there and say listen you talk about social green diverse but the architecture looks like this should we not collaborate and bring your philosophy uh, yeah and make buildings out of them that are much closer to it so yeah it's it's actually yeah indeed i would say it's a convincing message that's for starters and then it would be good if you can prove that with your own built work or what you have done before so to show to those clients that you're trying to bring in, I think this is good for you. And look, I can do this. There's another question that you did answer in your book a bit about, and some people are asking about this too, about a free work, how you deal with, to what degree you are offering services. It would be also interesting if you could speak a little bit to when you set up the engagement with a client that you're developing a relationship with, at what point do you actually take the relationship building to another level where you're structuring a proposal so that you don't get caught in a situation where you're continuously providing a free value. 
Yeah, free work is just totally absurd. This is one of the specialties of architects that, strangely enough, the architectural thinking is just handed over as a present. I think it's absolutely weird in, in this line of business. We actually want to be paid for it. And uh, for my book, I interviewed all these uh, young architecture practices in Britain, and they all said, we never work for free. And then they all were moment silent. And then they said, well, but so uh, <laughs> it is also something, you know, the, the Helsinki Guggenheim 1750 architecture teams actually worked for free. It wasn't even built. It is something we are so enthusiastic about uh, architecture that we just give it away for free. And we really shouldn't do this. We should basically not do it. But you know, there's always somebody who does, who believes that this is the right project and so on. So we have this rule and we also had it when we were in trouble and we were younger. And that is based on simple sales psychology uh, that they always have to, you know, pay us a little bit at least. Even if we think it's a great potential client and they want to test the waters with us, we are a risk for them and, and, and. And it's such a great location. They need to pay us a little bit. Otherwise, we know that they are not going to value the work as much because uh, it's basically worthless because it was given just like that. So that's a very important rule. We also have a rule for a minimum amount of money for a competition. And uh, it needs to be really excellent to go over it. We also did not enter the Guggenheim Helsinki competition because we felt like this was really not serious in that sense that uh, that everybody could just you know you didn't have to apply it was just so unrealistic this this entire project and i think that the question when you move from networking to an engagement letter or whatever i would say the moment you start talking about a concrete location a concrete program for me that would be the moment say, okay now you're becoming concrete and i also want to talk about what this means for me and if you can't pay me now then at least i want to agree that i'll do this sketch for free if you use it you will pay me afterwards that at least you set some some milestones okay this is all i can give you and then I want this in return. So the moment you start talking about a project, I would say put something on paper. Yeah, also, but, if you get nothing, if you don't get anything paid, I would still put that on paper. Yeah, and remind them that they got a present and that uh, perhaps it needs, yeah, there is something else coming back. Huh? So you need to talk to them. But the rule of thumb is the moment that you make a design, you need to be paid for it in some way. I mean, I think this has been an amazing conversation. I wish we could talk for another hour about this without without creeping too much into your late night routine. So I just want to thank you both. And I'll ask the last question that we like to ask here because we do dive into a lot of business, but we at Monograph, we fundamentally believe that it's also important to be human. It's kind of like one of our core values. And so our, question, our last question is always kind of brings it back to just being human. And that question is... What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? We get all sorts of answers here from personal to just, you know, not as personal. So it's up to you, but you could start off with Jan. Sure. Well, actually, I have to keep it personal because the nicest thing that anyone ever has done to me certainly didn't happen at work, even though I have wonderful colleagues 
but I can do this job only and I travel a lot and it's a hectic job, of course, and I love it. I can do this only because my husband uh, supports me with the three kids that we have. And uh, without him, I couldn't, uh, I really couldn't do it. And it's, I'm always totally surprised that, uh, that this is working. I'm very grateful for it. Awesome. Inge? I had to think about this, but then I recalled me being on vacation a couple of years ago, receiving a phone call from the neighbor who was taking care of my plants. And then he said, your living room has flooded. What shall we do? Shall we clean up the space and call the fire brigade to pump it all out? And then later we heard that it was not just this neighbor, but actually three or four of our neighbors had jointly come together in our living room to clean up everything and fix the hole and... And I think, yeah, that yeah, would have been an awful return home after a nice break. So uh, that was a really nice thing of my neighbors to do for us. Yeah, I think you have to experience nice things and then you can also get, return them. In my neighborhood, we all together have uh, we have given homes to Ukrainian refugees. And I think in these times, this is super important that you create exactly that moment, hopefully for these people. That uh, if they would come here to you to answer this question, that they can say that, yeah, somebody actually took them in. I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful. All those stories, just incredible. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. If someone wants to get in touch with you, you know, just like with any kind of follow-up questions that you might be interested in, in answering, how might they be able to do so? I answer any questions on LinkedIn, so you can become my friend and on LinkedIn, and then I answer the question. I cannot guarantee it's going to be tomorrow, but usually I have a response time of a few days. Yeah, same for me. I'm also available on LinkedIn. I respond to everybody, but I also get a lot of acquisition questions, mainly from visualizers, and there I have <laughs> <laughs> so that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah, don't sell us renders. We have a render studio. Exactly, yeah. So it's, uh, I admire all your talents, but we have people in-house that do all our visualizations. But other than that, I answer your questions. Thank you both. Inga, Jan, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Really amazing conversation. And I thank hope you. we can continue it. In, yeah, hope we can continue it in person someday. It would be great for us to travel over and check out the offices there. And the orange room, which we didn't get to see. We're also opening in Manhattan quite soon. So I hope you can uh, meet us there. And well, thank you so much for having us. It was a great pleasure. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Cheers. See you next time. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.